Today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 3, and in the Church Bible, it's page 273. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling us at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a great pleasure to be with you here this morning. I said earlier that seven people this week have come up to me and said, I'm really looking forward to hearing you preach on Sunday. So, no pressure. 
So I offer you this talk in the hope and prayer that God will use it for his glory and will speak to you. So let's pray. Father, I ask that you take these words and use them to reveal the deep secrets of our hearts and your purposes and actions in this world. May we understand ourselves better and come closer to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had an experience of hearing God, either audible voice or inner thoughts or pictures, or sensing his presence, his holiness, his peace. Abraham had heard God's voice and responded to it. Moses and his successor Joshua had both heard God's voice and responded to it. In fact, God described Moses as one whom he spoke with face to face. We got the, uh, can we have the first, this is the first one that says, see, I'm doing something. The books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were written with the two books of Kings, Joshua and Judges, as a record of God's interaction with the Jewish nation from the time of their arrival in the Promised Land to the exile. They record their successes, their failures, what worked and what did not work, And they reveal God's character, his purposes, his hopes for his chosen nation, the Israelite nation. All of this written in order to teach future generations in the hope that they would walk uprightly with God. In the first two chapters of 1 Samuel, we hear of Samuel's mother, Hannah, barren at the time, pleading with God to give her a child, and promising to dedicate the child to God. We hear of her subsequent joy at Samuel's birth and of Samuel living with the priest Eli at the tabernacle in Shiloh, that holy place which housed the Ark of the Covenant, that special box carefully decorated with a cherubim on top that contained the two tablets of stone that God had written the Twelve Commandments on some 200 years previously. Shiloh, that holy place where the Jewish nation came to offer sacrifices to Yahweh in atonement for their sins and in thanks to God. Eli had led the nation as their priest for 40 years And his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, also served as priests. They were called to stand in the gap between the people and God, to mediate God's purposes, to be avenues of God's forgiveness. But they abused their position. They failed in their responsibilities. They deliberately stole the meat offerings, thereby making a sham of the people's repentant attitude, cheating them and mocking God and perverting the holy of holies. Everyone could see this, but were powerless to prevent it, to stop it. So God was going to intervene 
and caused the death of Eli's sons and cut off all of Eli's descendants from the priesthood. And all the people would see this and recognize it as God's doing. And that is where our reading starts. See, I am about to do something. The word of God was rare in those days. I don't know about you, but I would find that really difficult. The word of God was rare. Few people heard from God. Perhaps few people were listening to God. How bereft one would feel. So three times God called Samuel, a boy who did not yet know God, had not yet heard God, had not yet met with God. And here is God, the creator of the universe, calling him by name. Samuel. Samuel. On the third time, Eli, sinful though he was, recognized that this was Yahweh calling the boy. It is symptomatic of Eli's failures and of Samuel's innocence and purity that God is speaking to the boy Samuel and not the adult Eli, the adult in the position of authority, the adult already called and anointed by God to be his priest, to minister before him. God speaks directly to Samuel, to the boy who becomes the man who remains faithful to God for all his life, the man with a heart for God, a heart of obedience and trust. See, I am about to do something. And God tells young Samuel, what he is going to do to Eli's sons, their forthcoming death, the wiping out of the priestly line. And Eli presses Samuel for the details and accepts the verdict, the judgment, the consequences of his failings as a priest, as a father. He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. There is no questioning, no pleading, no arguing or defense, just acceptance and acknowledgement of his failures and the consequences. See, I am about to do something. It is not the first time that God has acted and not the first time he has acted against sin. The story of Noah reminds us of that. But there are other more positive actions. God called Abraham and formed a covenant with him for all future generations. He called Moses and caused the plagues that led to the release and migration of the Jewish nation. He acted in the fall of Jericho and continue to act on behalf of his chosen nation. 
Then to Isaiah and Micah, he prepared the way for the Messiah. And the most amazing act of God since the creation then occurred. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and God placed his own son in the womb of Mary. And Jesus Christ, God himself, became a human being, lived and died, and rose again from the dead, then ascended into heaven, thereby allowing the Holy Spirit to be poured out on all those who love Jesus and accept him as their Savior and Lord, restoring the broken relationship with God himself. See, I am about to do something. Time and again, since then, God has acted throughout history and among different races and communities. This last week, in our morning prayer, we have remembered George Fox, the founder of the Society of Friends, the Quakers, so-called because the power of the Holy Spirit was so much on them that they began to quake. In Maidley, one of the churches I'm a curate at, John Fletcher and his wife lived and ministered, and from their work and the work of the Wesley brothers, the Methodist Church was born. 110 years ago, in 1904 and 1905, there was a revival in Wales. People wept as the Holy Spirit convicted them of their sin. Prayer meetings lasted six to eight hours. Drunkenness and swearing virtually stopped. Everyone talked about faith in Christ. One hundred thousand people came to Christ. See, I am about to do something. One of the people who was involved in the Welsh revival was Evan Roberts, who had four points which he considered necessary for each individual. You must put away any unconfessed sin. You must recognize and get rid of sin, particularly those hidden sins which only God and we know about. Allow the Holy Spirit to show us our sins and allow her to set us free from them. Do not be like Eli and his sons who brought the wrath of God upon themselves. You must put away any doubtful habit. Trust God in all things and for all things, that God's purposes are God's divine and holy purposes. You must obey the Holy Spirit promptly. Listen and obey instantly without prevarification or dispute. You must confess Christ publicly. Do not hide your faith. Do not hide God's actions. Tell others of your commitment and faith in Christ. Tell others of what God has done for you. It releases something 
in the spiritual realm. It creates a positive faith environment. If we follow these guidelines, then we are well on the way to becoming God's people, of following God's will, of being part of his action in the world. Yet, how many of us have prayed for a person or situation and failed to see something happen? A healing that did not occur. Have hoped and prayed for a conversion to Christ, a life to be transformed, a community come to know Christ. But God has seemed to remain silent, distant, his voice rare and not heard. When we look around the world today, there are many examples of violence, persecution, bloody revenge and bitterness, of greed and dishonesty, of corruption. The list goes on. In this age of the Holy Spirit, of the kingdom of God being here, but not fully here, how can this be? Surely Jesus' coming was to end all of this. See, I am about to do something. But Jesus' death and resurrection, despite all that it achieved and won, was not the final answer. The end is yet to come. And we are called to live our lives with that in mind, the hope of a new heaven and a new earth, the hope of a life beyond this life, a life lived in the presence of God, which this life is just a precursor, a preparation, a shadow of what is to come. Some time ago, I came across seven habits of people who place radical trust in God. Radical trust. These are disciples who have learned what is really important in life, what really matters and have often learnt this through persecution and hardship. They have daily appointments with God. It sounds so straightforward, and I suspect that many here do that or strive to do that. It is a priority in their lives because this is what sustains and energizes them. In prayer, they listen more than they talk. J. John says that the average woman speaks 35,000 words a day. And the average man, 20,000. So guys, maybe we have an advantage on this. Listen. They limit distractions. Too many objects in the house. Too many things to think about or look out for. Too many decisions to make. Cut them out. Keep life simple. They submit their discernment to others. When we hear something from God, offer it to be checked 
and affirmed by others. Do not assume you have the one and only ear of God. Recognize that we are all fallible and our own desires, our own hopes, our own fears twist and distort, impoverish how and what we hear from God. They offer their Lord their complete, unhesitating obedience. Yes, Lord. Now, Lord. Of course, Lord. Straight away, Lord. Mia told a story last week of hesitating and not obeying God. And I have my own similar stories of not obeying. And I regret them horribly. But like Mia, I also have other stories of obedience and the ensuing delight of having stepped out of seeing God do something. These people, these saints, these people who live a radical life accept suffering. And perhaps for us, this is difficult. For so much of our Western culture tries to avoid suffering. Yet for many in the world, and for many Christians, it is a way of life. Physical or emotional suffering, even spiritual suffering. Suffering is a part of their life. Perhaps we should be asking if we have not suffered in some way, then why not? These people, these radical trusts in God, accept the inevitability of death. Two things we have in common. Firstly, we are all sinners. We all fall short of God's desire and perfection for us. And secondly, we will all die. We've on from this life to the next. So how do we measure up to these? How expectant are we of God working in and through us? Have we become jaded by unanswered prayer? By previous disappointments? See, I am about to do something. Let this refrain Echo inside yourself. Let it become a matcher for you so that you are constantly looking out for what God is doing within you and within the people around you. Last week, my wife and I had the pleasure of skiing for a week and a lady fell and hurt her hand. It was quite swollen and I offered to pray for her. As I encased her hands in mine, Gently, I was suddenly aware of her panic, her fear, her fear of going to the doctor, fear that it might ruin the weak skiing. So I silently prayed for peace for her. And as I prayed, you could see her visibly relax. All the tension go out of her. And then I prayed for her hand. And when we finished praying, she noticed that the swelling had gone down. And she could move her thumb more freely. 
Five weeks ago, I did a similar injury on my hand. When I was cycling, I came across black ice and I slid across the road. Fortunately, there were no cars there. God's protection. And while we were praying, there was a warmth in my hand. God was healing this woman emotionally and physically, but was also doing more healing for my own hand. See, I am doing something. I wonder if you remember the story of Elisha and Elijah. The prophet Elijah is about to be taken up into heaven and he warns the younger Elisha that this is about to happen and asks, what can I do for you? And Elisha, unlike Saul, asks for something that would always hold him right with God. He asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. A double portion of the Holy Spirit that had guided and empowered Elijah. Is there someone full of the Holy Spirit whom you have respected? Who has now died? And have you asked God for a double portion of the Holy Spirit that they had? There are a lot of people praying in this church and it's been wonderful to see them doing it this week. And I encourage you all to be very specific in your prayers, to spend time praying for individuals, not generalities, not the people outside, but name those you know or have met. Ask God to help you go deeper in your prayers, to the root of an individual's barriers, to the root of their problems, and to bring healing and release, to open up their emotional wounds and allow God's healing to enter in, to remove the emotional splinters, to clean out the pus, to pray for forgiveness for the original hurts, the original sin, and to heal the wounds. And then to enable the individual to learn a new way of being, a new way of freedom, freedom in which they can receive the good news of Jesus. See, I am about to do something. Let me finish with a story that reflects God's action in his timing. When my father was 10 years old, his much-loved father died. And when he came home that day from school, he was told by his uncle that he was the man of the house now. I do not think my father ever really allowed himself to grieve. And he held his emotions very much to himself felt he had to be always the strong one, the independent one. When I was born again in the spirit and spoke of Jesus, he was quite anti and did not understand why I needed Jesus Christ, an unnecessary intermediary. To him, God was always present, 
just behind his right shoulder, always there, but too busy to listen to his prayers. When he was 81, he had a hip operation. His hope was that he would be able to go skiing again. But instead, he caught pneumonia and was seriously ill in intensive care. One day, I was praying for him at home, and I had a picture of him lying in bed, and this bright light was shining out from within him. See, I am about to do something. A couple of weeks later, a few weeks before he died, he spoke to my wife on the telephone and said, God and I have been having a chat and I have come to recognize that Jesus Christ is his son. <laughs> Let us pray. <laughs>